Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Microsoft Surface and Teams. At CDW, we get the future of remote meetings works differently. Oh, going right from lunch directly into a meeting, that could be awkward. But with Microsoft Surface devices with Teams orchestrated by CDW, the future works better. Touchscreen voice capabilities keep Teams engaged and productive, enabling you to always collaborate with confidence. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining. Psst, you have a spinach in your teeth. Thanks for the tip, man. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash surface. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Welcome back to the Here We Are podcast, everybody. Sorry we missed a week last week. I was in Jamaica uh, doing a psilocybin retreat. I just needed it. I've just had a rough few months just internally wanting to kind of uh, give up and questioning why I why I pursue anything and and what is the point in anything and uh, do I still want to do stand up? Do I still want to do this podcast? I've been getting overwhelmed. I've been giving up on, on humanity and myself. I find humanity to be a really disappointing species sometimes just because we have such incredible capabilities and we, we do really have, um, so much potential and, and this really pretty unique um, ability to shape our, environment um for 
the better, whatever the better means necessarily. And so it's it's a little frustrating when you see things like uh, you know today's episode with infanticide is is just a really good example of of the brutal choices that that life makes and uh and the consequences of life life tends to spread itself too thin and have to make some really hard decisions sometimes and and some of these uh the way in which these cultural um norms are shaped and and the the way our instincts have evolved and uh man a, a lot of it a lot of it just isn't isn't pretty and Lately, I just haven't wanted to look at it. I just haven't wanted to think about it. Um, but I've kind of been obsessing over, over uh, really the darkest um, areas of life lately, and I just haven't been able to to stop. And over the last ten days, I've kind of uh, it was amazing. I was I, um, you know, these are <laughs> these are things that. Uh, uh, psilocybin is is definitely not not necessarily a feel good kind of a <laughs> kind of a drug or experience. It uh, it's it's really about processing a lot of um, life, and life can be brutal. And it was kind of showing me how to process some of these dark ideas a, a little more in these in these uh, dark realities and. I feel, uh, I just feel a lot more balanced now. I don't know how long it will last for, but I, I feel that I can, I can face these things and kind of nudge myself and, in, in a, uh, direction that, as far as I can tell, consciously suits me a little better. And, and I do think that there are ways in which, um, we can, we, we can nudge um, humanity and uh, the ecosystem that we find ourselves in and in the right direction. It's been a, a really, um, this, this year overall, I've just, I've just kind of lost hope uh, in things. And I, I do think, um, I often think about the, the future looking back at us with all of this, all of these um we're now documenting everything and recording everything and 24-hour news cycle and a zillion podcasts and and uh you know uh, all all this all these great scientific records this is we are we are really um capturing our our life experience um in a in a way that we never have before and so people in the future are are really going to be able to understand what was going through our minds at a time and um i i think that there's still i i think that future people are always just going to be kind of shaking their heads in a little bit of disbelief at at how primitive the the present is and that's probably an that's probably a never-ending thing anyway over the last 10 days i've just been able to 
um, face some of my own problems and my own inner conflicts and uh, and life's many conflicts, I've just been able to just kind of observe it and slowly move through it and um, not not get too anxious or too excited or too overwhelmed or paranoid or anything. I've just felt I've just felt really uh a lot more balanced finally. I think I've I've had the chance to process a lot of these ideas and come to accept um some of our current circumstances and just figure out how how I want to move forward and how um how we can decide for ourselves how we want to move forward and how we can all have a little bit more of a say in our own futures and together uh crafting a uh a world and an environment that suits all of us just a little bit more and and what compromises will need to be made um so anyway none of none of that might <laughs> a lot of that might not mean anything um just personal stuff and uh, that I've been dealing with and thinking about in this episode <laughs> about infanticide um really kind of brought brought some of the the uh examples uh to the surface for me so um i hope you enjoy i recorded this episode um while i was still in the middle of of a kind of a, a pretty dark time and trying to claw my way uh out um and uh i think it came out pretty good i'm i'm, I'm pretty happy with it it's a pretty interesting ep- episode and i think it's uh you know these are all just things that we that exist that we have to face and if it's something that we uh don't agree with and want to change that's all the more reason to face it and try to understand it um and and figure out why it exists in the first place so um yeah i don't know that's just uh i thought i'd uh i thought i'd just share where I was at with you guys, and and this is, I could talk endlessly about some of the things that I've been thinking about lately, and maybe I will on on Patreon, um, as this is already eight and a half minutes, um, but uh, I thought um, I thought you guys would at least I think it's helpful for you guys to at least understand where I'm coming from. Uh, sometimes with this podcast, again, for, for, if no, for no other reason, so you can understand, um, my biases and understand that, uh, <laughs> that maybe my, um, my perceptions and judgments are being influenced by my various moods or where I happen to be at a certain point in my life. And the, and the information presented on this show might, uh, resonate with you on a completely different level at a different time in a different moment 
in ways that I couldn't possibly foresee. So, yeah, um, I, ho- I hope you're enjoying this, future people. And uh, I look forward to talking to you at the end as well. Enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast, everybody. Today, I'm talking with cultural anthropologist with a strong influence in evolutionary theory, PhD student at USW Van or WSU Vancouver. I just got a little dyslexic there. We're <laughs> we're still we're we're in good shape. I got it. WSU Vancouver. Thank you for correcting me, Scott Calvert. Everybody, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. Thanks for having me. So, um, so you're you're part of the group with uh, with Ed Hagen and um, Kristen Syme. I am. Yes. And and that's how I. Uh, that's how I found you, and you, it's a it's a dark group over there. We had uh, we had Ed on talking about depression, Kristen talking about suicide, and then you uh, are studying infanticide. Yeah, yeah, it's a joyous, <laughs> it's a joyous group. <laughs> how uh, you were telling me a little bit about this um, uh, beforehand, I thought it was fascinating. How did you first get into studying infanticide? Uh, it was kind of uh, a circuitous route. I um, originally circuitous, <laughs> awesome. Throughout my um, word of the day, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I did my undergrad at WSU as well, and um, actually, the reason. I got into anthropology in the first place was um, because I was just fascinated by courses I took with um, Ed Hagen, actually, and my chair of my committee, his name is Barry Hewlett, and he spent 40 years working with Aka pygmies in the Congo rainfor- Congo Congo Basin uh, rainforest, and uh, I had my heart set on <laughs> working with um, the Aka, who are a pygmy or hunter-gatherer group in the Congo Basin. Um, and wanted to go do wanted had wanted to go do research with them, uh, but unfortunately, civil war broke out in this, in, uh, in the CAR, and so I wasn't able to go there. Um, so my hopes and dreams were dashed a little bit. Um, but my Barry, my the chair of my committee, had been to Ethiopia um, several times and had um, worked. And lived with um, a group called the Hammer, who live in southwest Ethiopia. They're a pastoralist, agro-pastoralist group in southwest Ethiopia. So they do a combination of um, agriculture and, and pastoralism. And uh, so he suggested I go down there and check them out. And I went there and I was originally interested in social learning and particularly children um, and how, how beliefs are transmitted to children, cultural beliefs. Um, and I had a whole experiment worked up and, and I was all excited and it was brilliant and I was all going to be, you know, it was my claim to fame. Um, <laughs> but I got there and uh, and part of the experiment involved, I needed adult participants that were in the culture to be involved in the experiment. And uh, the experiment required 
a couple of these participants to lie. And um, I was new there. I didn't really speak the language, working through a translator. And either of it was because of translation difficulties, but I could not get them to lie during the experiments. They wouldn't lie to the children. Um, and so <laughs> I was totally defeated and I didn't know um, how to go forward. I was very, very frustrated. But while I was there, um, I uh, learned that they also have a tradition of infanticide, um, which was just sort of on its face um, intriguing to me. Um, and I didn't really know much about infanticide at the time, but I began asking questions about that. And I learned that some other researchers, uh, European researchers who had been there, um, done the bulk of their work in the 70s and 80s, um, had done some work into it and had described it um, sort of in basic terms. Um, but I was really interested in understanding um, more about that and, and if there were any patterns that were happening with this infanticide and what what sort of dynamics were, were encouraging this practice within this group. So that's how I kind of got involved in infanticide and went from there. I, uh, <laughs> I have my, uh, one of my grandmothers, she used to always, every time there was bad news, yeah. um, like she had to, especially as she got older and yeah. people in her town where her friends were dying off and whatnot, every time she had to share the news about it, she would always have like this nervous, laughter yeah. whenever she's sharing the news yeah. and so now i'm like i'm like i think i'm just gonna be nervously giggling for the next <laughs> hour through an infanticide so that's not that's not me giggling at infanticide that's my uh that's this weird thing that i picked up from my grandma that's just a nervous reaction no i imagine that this conversation will give you a lot of you know material for your oh for your sure. act and be able to take that yeah on the road a bit, yeah that's the word yeah that's yeah that's uh, that's i usually you want to open with the infanticide yeah, yeah. Material, just to get everyone nice and loose and warmed up and feeling no. good about yeah. themselves no it's great conversation starter at parties <laughs> um <laughs> what do you what do you do i study baby killing i'm, I'm serious like that's that's what i'm gonna start using when i'm on air because it's always <laughs> awkward to tell people that i'm i'm a comedian because then people want to know everything about it right but i figure if i just say i study baby killing then yeah people yeah kind of leave me alone after right. that is that the general reaction or do, do people have follow-up questions or do they <laughs> do they just walk away from you immediately <laughs> I think it definitely depends on personality type, sure. whether people are interested. But um, yeah, I've definitely had people just like blankly, seriously at parties, just people stare blankly at me and conveniently find <laughs> like, I really have to use the restroom. Do you? Well, this is, I mean, this is what you're, you're going to run into studying life in general, yeah. studying, yeah. I mean, especially evolution evolution is brutal <laughs> and it is and it's uh, i mean it's a very it makes people very uncomfortable the the reality of the many different mechanisms and strategies that have evolved throughout all of the species yeah yeah, uh, yeah. and and then you know it's it's uh certainly a lot easier to think about um uh, a lion committing infanticide than it yeah. is uh, humans. Yeah, you know, we yeah. like to distance ourselves from absolutely uh, these negative animalistic primal things because we we're so sophisticated and better than that. But this is a part of our history. Yeah, and 
and yeah. and it's i mean this is something that not just uh this isn't just infanticide but the female female reproduction is is uh is always going to be a big issue yeah and and reproductive it, rights are going to always be a big issue and still are in every sure. culture yeah absolutely um and it i mean it's not just a part of our past either you know it happens in our own society and um definitely people you know are shocked and um dismayed and have a lot of judgments when they hear about infanticide and it's just something that's really hard to fathom um for for people who aren't in those situations um when they hear about it on the news um it's difficult to fathom why how anybody could bring themselves to kill uh a child um but that also has to do with a lot with you know people again people viewing things through their own cultural lens through their own sociocultural background um and so that's uh, a lot of the work of you know anthropologists who have studied anth- uh, infanticide is to bring some understanding and that there's you know there's a, a rationale there's reasons behind this um, that it's not always just a sickness uh, it's not a pathology necessarily that that happens you know that's the reason behind this it's not just you know psychotic women who are criminals um, killing their children um, so myself um and there's another guy named aaron denham who's done a lot of work he works in ghana um to try and elaborate and understand the experiences of of women and what they're going through in the situations of, of when this when this occurs and um just trying to understand it from their viewpoint and, and sort of the decision making process and and you know what they're going through psychologically and socially and and just trying to bring humanity to it um with the Evolutionary perspective, like evolutionary perspective, like you said, it's um, can be really brutal and um, sort of stripping things down to um, just trying to increase various ways of increasing fitness, increasing you know chances of survival and, and reproductive fitness. Um, and when you categorize categorize things like that, I mean, it, it helps us to understand you know what are the motivations for infanticide, but it can also you know evolutionary studies. Um, in order to understand the patterns, oftentimes strip things down to numbers and, you know, you know, which numbers fit in which categories and it kind of can dehumanize it a little bit. Right. So it brings understanding in one sense, but it can dehumanize the experience or the, you know, the context in which infanticide occurs. And so um, while I fully appreciate the evolutionary perspective and that's had a huge impact in how I understand infanticide and it's extremely valuable. I think it's also necessary to understand the human element and understanding what, what women are going through, what, you know, the social cultural context in which infanticide occurs to, to help people understand that all this stuff that happens is, is, you know, we're all human and we all, we're not so different from each other, even in these sort of really extreme instances of things like infanticide and suicide and things like that. Right. Um, well, I mean, it, it is, it's interesting from an evolutionary perspective, um, when you talk about, uh, uh increasing fitness yeah. to, uh, how, how is it that, uh, infanticide can increase fitness? It kind of seems like the opposite of, yeah. of what, uh, what you'd want to do. Totally counterintuitive, right? right? Like if you want, if you want to increase your fitness, why would you, yeah, why you want to spread genes? Why? Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, that's a great, great point. Um, 
And that's why it was a big evolutionary puzzle for a long time. Um, so early ideas of infanticide were kind of based on the idea of group selection. So early on, like in the 50s and 60s, this idea of group selection was really popular. That And it, these studies of, of birds, like, like, yeah, like, well, like there were studies of birds, I think petrels, where, you know, these birds would, they would have like seven, seven babies, right? Seven little birds. Right. And then the parents would either kill or let siblings kill a certain number of the offspring. Mm-hmm. And so this, it was this idea like, oh, well, there's, you know, resource competition. There's not enough resources. So parents are doing this for the good of the species. They're killing some of their children because they realize that if they have all of these children, then it's going to hurt the survival of the survival of the species. Um, if there's too many, too many birds, if we have too many children, then a lot of, a lot of birds are going to die. So we're going to kill some of our, of our children for the good of this, for the survival of the species. Right. It wasn't personal interest, right? Um, but then, uh, group selectionism so group went, went by the wayside, went by the wayside. So people became interested or, um, Robert Shriver's idea of parental and, uh, theories on parental investment. Um, and the idea that, you know, if you have a lot of children and there's a lot of resources, then great. Keep all of your children because that's going to increase your genes. Um, increase the you know frequency of your genes in the population. More children, more genes than population. Wonderful. But if there are fewer resources and you're unable to provide for all of those children, then it makes more sense to you. May, more it makes more sense for you as a parent to allow the weakest of your of your offspring um, potentially to die. Um, because that increases the chances that at least some of your children are going to survive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. If you if you try to if you try if you know if you have ten children but you don't have the resources to provide for all of those children, um, then there's a good chance that maybe all of them will die. But if you really invest heavily in a few of children, the most the ones that are most likely to survive, then you have a better chance that your genes are going to be passed on to the next generation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. Uh... There's a scene that sticks out on one of the planet Earth or one of those documentaries that yeah. showed showed penguins where the mother would like make make the two children like run after her and whichever one could keep up would be the one that would survive yeah, yeah. and the other one just That's... gets left behind because it doesn't have enough yeah she doesn't have enough resources for both of them so they would either both die or or one of them is yeah to... yeah those nature shows when I was growing up it was all about group selection but but yeah, yeah but yeah that's what you're saying is um. Yeah, absolutely right. That's that's sort of the brutality of of nature. Yeah, right. So so group selection went away, um, and so so what are kind of the common uh, modern theories? Yeah. Um, so as people have studied this, it's become clear that there's not any single. There's not one reason why infanticide occurs. There's a lot of factors, a lot of reasons why parents or um, adults would kill children. There's, it happens for a lot of different reasons. Um, probably the most common reason um, in the animal kingdom and in humans, um, cross-culturally, is when uh, an infant is, has some congenital deformity, um, is deformed in some way, or exhibits um, some sort of weakness that that 
signals to the parent that that child has a very or relatively low chance of survival, either a relatively low chance of survival and also a relatively low chance that they themselves, that the child themselves will grow up to be able to reproduce. Um, so they not may not, if they, if they do grow up, then they wouldn't be a desirable mate for other people to have um, in the future. And so their investment, the costs of investing in those offspring right. is, is really high compared to probably very low reproductive benefits. Well, um, no, and what few people want to admit is that children in general are just a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> they are costly. It's, it's, yeah, uh, no. it's expensive as hell. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's really, really, really hard to, to raise children. And humans are really unique, or not, I shouldn't say unique, but they're relatively rare in, in among vertebrates in that um, how much we invest in raising children. It's huge, massive investment for humans to raise children because most animals, um, in most animals, parents raise their children for at most like two or three years at most. Yeah. Um, and then the children, the offspring are, are on their own with, with, you know, basically any animal you can think of. Children are on their own after one or two years. With humans, massive investments in time and energy. I'm 37. My parents are still still worried helping about you me. out, right? Yeah, yeah. I still, you know, like That's I still brutal. ask my mom, like, can I? You know? <laughs> um, and not just in you know, just advice and and. Children need are needy, um, and so it's hard to raise children. So if you have, that's another thing that um, they've been. My parents, in hindsight, by the way, kind of get in fact. <laughs> I, I, I think had they known, thirty-seven years later, yeah. still getting calls for a, a loan yeah. <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, I mean. I mean, even in our household, you know, when things get rough, like that's your child <laughs> today. That's your child. Sure. Like it's too, sometimes it's just it can be overwhelming. And I think that most parents can understand that raising children can be really, really overwhelming. And it's particularly true of instances where you, you know, with in in households or entire communities that don't have a lot of resources. Right. Um, it's harder when you don't have a lot of resources. Um, so if you have a lot of children, if you've already had two or three children and you're, you know, a child comes quickly after you just had your last, you know, you've already raising three children, small children, and you have another child on, on top of that quickly after the res- the, the, the demands are really, really high. And, um, that actually leads to, um, excuse me, I got to take a drink of coffee. Um, Ed Hagen's research on postpartum depression, that's probably um, most relevant to um, people's experiences in the United States and the West. Um, and so he was trying to understand um, postpartum depression. Why why does this occur? Um, and generally, um, psychological, uh, in the field of psychology, it was sort of a puzzle. Why? And even in the uh, field of, of evolutionary anthropology, it's sort of a puzzle. Why Why would a woman just sort of turn off um, and not be there for her child, stop engaging um, with her child's, you know, sort of defect what he, Ed, Ed uses the term defecting from parenting. Love it. You know, so <laughs> sort of give up. And, and so there's this comment. So go ahead. Yeah, well, no, I mean, because in, in, in kind of the the general cultural narrative yeah. is that 
children are miracles and a sure. blessing and yeah. it's just this yeah. is the best thing that's ever happened to you so that you know you should be exceptionally excited about every one of these gifts that yes gifts from you know yeah <laughs> gifts from god gifts from our creator it's right. a miracle that you're you're able to have children and so and and sort of the popular belief is motherhood is a natural mothers are predisposed to you know devote everything they possibly can to their children and 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 give up everything in their lives um, and be very, very self-sacrificial um, for the good of their children. Um, and that's generally often true, but when we look um, at other animal species um, and, and humans, um, it's, it becomes really clear, you know, especially looking cross-culturally, it becomes clear that motherhood is, is what we call facultative. Um, Yes, mothers are amazing, and they do devote so much and sacrifice so much um, for their children. Um, but there are contexts in which those costs are too great, and they and um, they may the cost may outweigh the benefits of of investing in that child uh, in a particular particular child or offspring. And so, Ed looked at postpartum depression. And whereas a lot of, well, let me just bring up this one instance. So I don't know if you remember, but in 2001, um, this is like huge news in the United States. Um, there was a woman named Andrea Yates, a mother in Texas who had five children. Uh, and she uh, put her children, five children into her minivan and drove the minivan into a lake and her killed her the children drowned so she killed her five children i was hoping you were going to bring this up, yeah do you, do you remember that <laughs> yeah i do i do no I, I i was joking when i said i was hoping you're gonna bring it up but i do remember the story yeah. i mean it was it was like a national trauma right. like how oh my god this woman how how you know right um and the, so psychological and she was um, brought to trial, she had um, had a kind of history of psychosis, or what was called psychosis, and that she was uh, believed that Satan was talking to her. And the reason she gave for killing her children was that Satan was telling her to kill her children, and if because if she killed her children, it would save them from the fires of hell. This is the reason uh, that she gave, um, and she was brought up on charges of, of murder and sentenced to life in prison. And meanwhile, skip to 2017. She wasn't that far off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. I, 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 mean, I don't know why I'm trying to squeeze every <laughs> laugh out of this subject that I can. It's, no, I, it's really yeah. unnecessary. No, I really need to stop being so dry. And really, I need no. to dig deeper for the humor. No, no. No, you don't. If anything, that's my responsibility. But this, was, this isn't, it's not meant to be like a comedy podcast all the time. These are just my own nervous impulses to no, make no, crack jokes about. I, uh, okay, the so darkest total, subject matter. <laughs> total side note. I was actually like kind of racking my brain before this, knowing that you were a comedian, and like, <laughs> but I was thinking like, okay, how how can this possibly? Can we do? Uh oh, uh, I got it. I got right? it. Yeah, yeah. We're, Sorry about we're, that. We're, whew, no, that was my microphone was, difficulties. So yeah, there was. A, um, I don't mean to like bring up a competitor or anything, and I hope I'm not like uh -oh. bringing any hard feelings. But okay, so Louis, Louis C.K. Sure. Have you heard of Louis C.K.? 
Uh, I have, I have. Yeah, he's quite okay, popular. So he's a guy who does comedy. And he just has this one bit that I remember that like, so he's on a plane. He's talking about being on a plane with his, with his infant son or daughter, anyway, his child. And, you know, having other parents and this child's crying and driving everybody on the plane nuts and talking about how there's like this one guy who's looking at him like, shut that kid up, I swear to God. And, like, and him just saying like, what am I, what do you expect me to do? And then he just kind of mimes like strangling the child with this apologetic, submissive look on his face like, I'm so sorry. Is is that better for you? <laughs> you know, like, it's just... CK's the best. <laughs> he gets at, at delivering dark material. Totally dark material, but but it does like point like. Oh shoot! Hold on a second. Let me let me um check this microphone. Okay, and we're back. Try and stop moving. Okay. Microphone difficulties. Okay, so um, but anyway, you know. Louis C.K. is that bit kind of does point to the, you know, this idea that um, a lot of people are, can be somewhat insensitive to what it's like to be a parent and, oh, yeah. and the difficulties. I hate you know, kids. I, yeah. I really, I really, I'm Especially, sorry. I know that you have children. Yeah. I'm sure they're delightful. Yeah. And, and uh, it was Halloween last night yeah. and I, when I got some candy, yeah. I, I, I tried to appreciate all of <laughs> All of the cute little costumes and everything as much as I could. Because that's like the one time I'm like, I can tolerate that once right. a year. All right, yeah. And then... Uh, You've souped, but, your, souped yourself up to be cute enough where I'll tolerate you. For- <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no. I, I, and, by the way, I take a lot of... Uh, I, I fly a lot. Yeah. And, uh, so you, man, yeah. I've... Everybody's I've had, been on those flights, yeah, right? Yeah, I've, I've had some... I've had some real dark thoughts about... Uh, about small, totally, about small yeah. children on flights before. Absolutely. I was uh, on a... When I'm on one hour of sleep and I have... Uh, and I have like a six-hour flight. That, yeah. Yeah. It's rough. I was on a flight back from Korea once. Or actually, yeah, Korea, but it was... There was people on the flight from China and there was... Uh, somebody had brought 11 influents who were coming back... Infants who were coming back from, to the U.S. to be adopted... 11 infants and there was not one moment on the entire 11 hour flight where there wasn't at least one kid crying yeah, that should it be was illegal <laughs> it, was, it was murder yeah. so as other people's kids it's right <laughs> yeah but um i get it so back to andrew yates sure um so you know people look at and when they and the the news media and covering that story they really they focused on her and this this idea, you know, that Satan was telling her this this you know this horrible thing to do, and this is you know a lot of people say, well, this is an excuse she made up, and she's really just a criminal, and that's you know that's basically why she was prosecuted and 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 um, convicted and everything is because I mean people ignore didn't really there wasn't really any attempt even in the public to try and understand the situation that she was in, and I'm not trying to excuse. Um, anything but i'm you know just to bring some sort of understanding to i mean she was she had five kids they were very very closely spaced so they were all around you know very very young so she and she was basically raising them all by herself meanwhile also taking care of her grandfather who was sick and ill so she was like on her last thread you know she just she was just spread way too thin um in her life and that's what Ed Hagen, when he researches postpartum depression, um, which can, in its most extreme forms, turn into what's called postpartum psychosis in the uh, psychological world, 
Um, and he finds that postpartum depression is most likely to occur when women, when mothers, it's not just them. So it's, he's trying to understand that women, that mothers, you can't look at it and just look at the single person. You also, humans are social animals. And we're, you know, throughout our evolutionary history, we depend on each other. We raised in our ancestral environments, people raise children as communities. And so uh, when women feel that they don't have any so enough social support, that they, that they just can't deal with all of the, all of the responsibilities um, that they have, that postpartum depression is, is highly correlated with these situations with when, which women don't have, so they feel they don't have social support, don't have social support from their spouses or mates, um, from their families, um, just generally um, feel alone and taking on the immense, you know, massive investments of, of raising children, especially when you have a lot of children um, so close together. It's, it's so. Yeah, right. Um, and then you just snap eventually. It becomes too much. So his, so you talked about the bargaining model, I think with, with Kristen and uh, maybe to some extent with Ed, I don't remember, but. Um, That's, it's always nice to just do like a very quick refresher just yeah. so it, these are meant to be standalone as well. So. Yeah. No, so um, Ed's really been a huge proponent of the bargaining model, and it's um, brought him into a lot of different, helped really, uh, I think, helped to, to understand a lot of, of human behavior in a lot of different domains, but especially with suicide. And it's actually, um, he found, I think his first work with it was with postpartum depression. He found that postpartum depression was actually a good model for depression in general, and also with suicide. So uh, when mothers um, don't have any social support, uh Becoming really depressed and detaching and becoming lethargic, um, not being able to think clearly, uh, experiencing high degrees of insomnia or hypersomnia, um, just being di generally disengaged and not, especially not engaged in parenting. Um, it can and be can be a signal that the costs of parenting, of raising a child, raising an offspring, may be greater than the benefits, and also it can signal to other people around her, um, especially the spouse um, and family members, people in her social network, that the situation is not working out for the mom. Um, it's too much for her. Um, and it's also increased when there's really, really difficult births. So, um, so like breech births or anything, you know, any type of birth where it's really particularly painful or distressing um, can signal to the mother that it's a sort of an internal signal. This is too much and I can't deal with this all alone and I, I need, I need help. So, um, but other people, it's not just the mother who, who has interest in raising this child. It's her family and her social ne network want this child to be raised. And so if the mother um, sort of turns off, it can signal to other people around her. The situation isn't working out. So it's sort of a negotiation a bargaining saying, I, I'm turning off, I need help. And so generally, when people see this in mothers, they respond and do provide the help that, that the mothers need. And usually when that help does come, then the depression or psychosis tends to, tends, tends to fade away. Um, so it's just really important to understand um, the social context in which the, the mothers are going through. And um, like I said, humans are what are called cooperative, cooperative breeders. Um, we, we raise children together. Um, people, mothers, families generally have, you know, everybody contributes to raising, to raising children, especially in small scale 
societies and our ancestral um, environments, you know, hunter-gatherer societies, um, the responsibility of taking care of children is a, is a community thing. It's not just all put on the shoulders of mothers. And that that idea that everything is their sole responsibility of mothers or parent, the biological parents of children is relatively new in evolutionary terms. And so we need to understand, uh, you know, that this is a, it's not a psychosis or it's not a, a some sort of pathology that the, something is going wrong in the brain. It's that this is a natural thing that happens in order to achieve a, you know, a benefit to, right. to achieve a positive outcome. So these things happen. This is a natural psychological reaction to these circumstances. I, uh, I very much enjoy the term cooperative breeding network, by you the like way. That? Yeah, I do. I, I've, I've been trying to I've been trying to talk my girlfriend into letting me join a cooperative breeding. Is network. that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's be- yeah, well, it's becoming big. Uh, yeah, she's. <laughs> I, I haven't been. I, I haven't had much success. And then the problem is, is that the cooperative breeding network won't let me join without her. Uh, They'll let her join without me, but they won't let me join without her. So it's just I'm really in a pickle. So unfair. I know. It's um, yeah. That's something we also have to tackle as a society. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but yeah. So just to, I mean, cooperative breeding doesn't refer to you know, you know. <laughs> everybody's involved in <laughs> just uh free for all um but just in terms of raising right ra- yeah. so so when you when you uh when you study the it's called the hammer yeah yeah hammer uh-huh. so so the um i i was just reading a little bit the the mother-in-law has a lot of uh say and and yeah happens, right yeah so that's so this kind is of, kind of what you're talking about is that there's other family members involved there's and... other family members involved um so yeah the hammer uh which is this is typical of east african patchless and actually the majority of of societies on earth are uh patrilineal and patrilocal meaning that property is passed down and property prestige status all these things are passed down through the male line and that's tightly correlated with patrilocality, um, post-marital residence, which just means that when people get married, they go and live with the husband's family after marriage, as opposed to the mother. Matrilocality is living with the mother's family, patrilocality living with the, with the, with the husband's family. Mm-hmm. So that means that villages, communities are consist of related males who are, who are staying in the communities where they were born um, and unrelated women who are coming from other communities to live with their husband's family. So the males in the village tend to be more related than the women in, in the village. So when a woman comes to another village and so she's getting just, married. So you're a dude and you just sit around and wait for the ladies come to you in, in their society? Yeah, that's or, no. Yeah, they just, that's, not much work put in it. The women, <laughs> the just, women come flocking. Just, wow, <laughs> these must be some fellas. <laughs> no, I mean, there's, man, there's a lot of work that, that goes into it. There's arranged marriages and there's, a, you know, a lot of issues of, of alliance. You know, one of the main reasons for marriage is creating alliances between families. So if you have, you know, alliances between families over a large geographical area, then your family is that much more powerful politically, socially, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that happens in usually in areas where there's a lot of warfare. Um, so when people have to, when communities have to protect resources, tends to make more sense to have men um, who are closely related men living together because they make really good fighting partners um, to protect the resources that they have. So men end up tending tend to live together and the women come to 
leave their natal villages coming to the male's village. But anyway, in practice, that's, that's why we married my sister off to yeah. actually my brother-in-law is a really, he's a very strong warrior. Yeah. And so it, that'll come in handy. That's yeah. That's certainly why my wife married me. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I tend to beat up a lot of people <laughs> sure. indiscriminately. No, I can so tell. that's a big attraction. I was going to ask that. Yeah. I was going to ask if you beat up a but lot you didn't, of people. You didn't, you didn't need to, though, did you? <laughs> no, just looking I could at just me. kind of tell. But yeah. for the listeners, it's yeah. good that we pointed that out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah that's a problem with, with radio and, and internet broadcasts, is you can't see my prowess, <laughs> physical prowess. Um, <laughs> so, so, anyway, this, the hammer of patrilocal. And so that means in practice that women. The females come to live with their male husbands, with their families. And that means that women don't have the advantage of having their biological kin with them to help raise their children. Um, and typically, biological kin are more predisposed to invest more heavily. If you're living with your you know, natal kin who are biologically related to you, they're going to be really, really predisposed to help you raise your children. Right. Um but in patriarchal situations, a woman's going into, she's a stranger in that community. She goes in not knowing anybody, the other women there, you know, her husband's family, that's all new to her. Um, and so they kind of have to start from scratch. And usually, and with the hammer and a lot of these societies, the husband and wife don't even know each other. They may not have, may not have even seen each other beforehand. So it's really, really important if this woman, you know, it's a, for this woman to help, to be able to raise her children well, to develop strong relationships with her husband's family and the people in her husband's village. Why, uh, by the way, why hasn't there been uh, like a romantic comedy about these people? <laughs> like <laughs> arranged marriages and oh, infanticide. Man. I think it'd be prime for maybe like a Adam Sandler. <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can totally imagine like something in the vein of like the kind of, like a threes company type of slapstick sure, a little bit, sure. you know? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Should we get together on a script? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's what, as soon as as soon as this podcast is over, we're we getting are, to work. We are, okay. Let's get to work on that. Putting yeah. this outline together. <laughs> it's it's gonna be wacky, that's for sure. As long as there's baby murder. As, <laughs> as long, so, so that's of, the title <laughs> of the film. As long as there's that's our anchor. That's going to anchor the whole thing. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I just like making really uncomfortable jokes to make my guests squirm a little bit once in a while. That's I'm just, so that's it's not uh, you're you're dealing with it quite well. <laughs> um, so, there's parental uncertainty. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a huge thing. So again, oh, see you back on track. You're back. I'm well, really good at this. <laughs> I'm just the way you. I know. I'm in awe of myself right the way now. You I just I just pictured that. myself watching me. <laughs> I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here working through that maze of uncomfortable, and I was like, "Wow, you did it, Shane." <laughs> I'm I'm really sort of attracted to you at this point. This, is, this, is, well, this, this podcast keeps getting more comfortable by the moment. <laughs> so yeah, okay. So husband's family, which means it's not the woman's mom helping raise the kid. It's yeah. the husband's mom, husband's mother, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a really really important relationship. 
Yeah, if this um, is going to be, if you're going to watch out for these uh, for these grandchildren, you want to yeah. make sure that they're your grandchildren. So you want to make sure that they're your grandchildren, and that's a really big thing. So, um, the Hammer, um, and they're not unique in this, but the Hammer have developed a set of cultural rules to try. So that's also okay. Let me just give a little bit of a primer. So it's important. So if a woman's coming to the husband's village, um, and also all of the property is going to be passed down to the husband's children, the husband, there's a really, really increased concern that the husband is passing down his property to his biological children. Right. Um, especially the firstborn children. I won't get too complicated, but yeah, especially firstborn children is a really big concern because the firstborn children tend to inherit the bulk of, of the, of the inheritance. Yeah. Right? That was not terribly complicated. Okay. <laughs> it's called primogenitor anyway. So, oh, well, come on. Now you're just, no, I want to make it. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to make this as convoluted and impossible for people to understand as possible. I'm so, following you. You haven't lost me yet. Okay. We're going strong. So there's a really big concern with paternity certainty. People, males want to know that their children, the people they're passing their inheritance to are theirs. Um, so they've, they've developed cultural rules to sort of help ensure that their children are theirs. And one of the ways they've done this is um, women have ritual obligations. Um, and in the Hammer Society, women have to complete a series of three rituals before the birth of every single child that they have. Um, and the last of this these, movie is getting better and better, yeah, by the way. You can see the comedy <laughs> sort of just naturally springs from this. So um, the last of these rituals. Uh, well, I want to hear all three rituals. You're gonna you're gonna cut me short. And okay. Just give me, you're just gonna well, the, tease me with one one ritual. Then the, I'm just gonna be in the dark. Okay. The first two rituals are more to do with just um, welcoming the child into the welcoming the previous child into the society, giving it a name. Uh, it's, an, it's an opportunity for wait the, the, the relatives on, on all I'm, sides. I'm a little bit confused. Yeah. The, the previous child. So. So this woman already has a child and she's going into... Okay, 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 okay. So when the woman... Okay, I'll even get more detailed than that. When a woman comes to her husband's village, uh -huh. she actually isn't doesn't live with him for about three months. They okay. don't go straight into living with each other. One of the ritual obligations before the, the woman has a child is that, yes, I'm pointing at the table. And now I'm, I'm, this, I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at my thing and I'm making sure that, uh, yeah, anyway, go on. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was an aside. So the woman has to, the wife has to live, lives in her husband's mother's, the attic of her house for three months. I told you this was a comedy. All right. Yeah. Com comedic hilarity ensues. So she has to live in her husband's mother's house for three months um, and comes out um, ideally only to pee, use the restroom, and to sweep goat droppings at the end of the day um, in the goat crawl where they keep the goats. So she has very limited. She's in the house. She's not really allowed any contact with anybody, especially other men. Let's see how she is with goats first. Yes. You got to then... vet the goat, <laughs> yeah. the goat sweeping the skills. Yeah, skills, exactly, right. first. If not, we're done with this. You can go back home. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what I look for in a lady as well. <laughs> so, you know, it's an opportunity for, you know, ideally for the for the, the wife and her husband's mother to develop a strong relationship because obviously the husband's mother um, will be, you know, that'll allow the husband's mother to be more invested in, in her children. Um, 
if they have a good relationship, but at the same time, she's secluded for three months, and that gives an opportunity for everybody to understand, to know whether the woman may be already pregnant, may have had, you know, premarital sex, and is pregnant with another man's child. Right. And there's actually documented cases of um, abortion and infanticide when women have, have shown to be pregnant um, during that, that three-month period. Right. Um, so anyway, at the end of three months, they're allowed to, you know, the husband's mother says, okay, now you are my child. And she really considers like it's a form of giving birth. Now she's allowed to go out of the house, which is symbolically, you know, okay, I'm giving birth to you. You're, you're out of my house. Give her to... You scooped up enough goat shit. <laughs> you are now... <laughs> quota is filled. Frida. Okay. The goat shit quota is filled. Um, so now... I mean, it's... And I get it too, because if, I, I mean, if you can, if you can scoop goat shit, surely you can raise a child it, total correlation with you know, raising children in sweeping yeah exactly it's the exact same skill set <laughs> it's, it's exactly right um so it's a great vetting system for goat sheep goat <laughs> so uh so that's you know the first way of them telling that this woman hasn't become pregnant before the marriage but then after you know so she's after she's given birth to her first child then she's got to do these three rituals the first two of which are mainly just occasions for um, the two families to kind of come and greet the child into the world and exchange gifts and give gifts to the child, name the child. Um, so it's just sort of, a, um, it's, it's a very, very social, social events. But the third ritual, um, and that doesn't take place until um, the previous child, the child that's already been born, the last child. Um, it can vary, but at least the child the teeth have had to have come in. Um, usually it doesn't take place until like a year and a half or two years after, after the woman has stopped uh, breastfeeding the f- previous child. And during that entire time, the woman is not allowed to have any sexual relationships with anybody, uh, including her husband. Okay. And uh, it doesn't happen in all cases, but a real how, fun place. By it's the way. totally fun place for women. Um, yeah. It's not easy. I really, it's not easy. I just cannot imagine living in my. <laughs> I know this is my, like living with your with your mother in law for three months. Anyway, it's hard. It's really rough on them. Right. So, uh, but they still for every child after that, they still want to vet. You know, they want to try and make sure that these children are the husbands, and so this they aren't allowed to have sex during the interim. And then the last ritual, it's up to the husband's mother, but usually the husband's mother, as part of this ritual, they wake up early in the morning and go into um, the goat crawl where they keep the goats. And there's a small ritual where they, um, and it happens, it's, it's, it's done over the course of two or three months. Um, and like, so one month um, when the ritual starts, they go early in the morning into the goat crawl. The husband's mother washes the woman's hands. And then that's pretty much the end of the ritual. And the next month they go out and they, they step on a piece of, I'm simplifying this, but basically it's not much more than this. They step on a piece of broken gourd together, um, and that's the extent of the ritual. Really, really simple. But um, especially in instances where the husband's mother doesn't fully trust uh, the wife, part of the ritual can also be that the husband's mother washes the menstrual blood off of the wife's thighs. So It's like a day at the spa or something. (laughs) Sure. Very intimate. Very right. <laughs> two women going off and yeah, yeah, yeah. hanging out, I get it. shooting the shit. Just some lady time. Yeah. That's yeah. A, <laughs> I listen. I know a lot about women, and I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's just what they're doing when they get together. Is that? Is that? 
I think I'm it, just going to assume that's what's happening most of the time. I think it's safe to assume that most female-female interactions revolve around... <laughs> yeah, wiping a menstrual blood off, <laughs> yeah. off the thighs. That's what I imagine is yeah. happening. Yeah. Sure. Especially within families where it's the most comfortable. So, so this is like... So this is... You're making sure that... Um, that she's not pregnant basically when you're doing this is like a very weird way of like ensuring that this woman yeah. wasn't already pregnant yeah exactly okay. so uh yeah exactly so you see the menstrual blood you're pretty confident that she's not already pregnant right. um and if she hasn't been allowed to have sex with her husband and is only allowed to do so directly afterwards then the husband has a very very good chance that he's going to be the father of any future children right who is Owen Wilson in this film, by the way. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Owen was Wilson, Adam Sandler before, but now I'm thinking Owen Wilson. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, well, was, if you, no, if you yeah. disagree with my casting, I mean, this is all... Look, we're just workshopping this. this who, is, who are you? Oh, Affleck. What about Affleck? No, no, it's too dark. Oh, no. <laughs> look, you, you listened to the episode that we did. I had to I, bring him up I'm again. I'm not a fan. It was a callback. I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm not a fan of those apps. By I'm, the way, history is on my side. Now Ben Affleck's in all sorts of trouble. He's in all sorts I just of trouble. Had a, I had a feeling. I'm gonna, he just I, struck me the wrong way, and I, I just I trusted my gut, and my gut was right once again. I have indirect, um, but very, <laughs> very um, reliable information. My sister is a filmmaker. And it's not, he's just, yeah, no, I get it. He's not, that, there's, there's great nothing actor, good, but... there's nothing good that you can say about the Afflex. I'm going so, Owen Wilson. So, okay. Yeah. Owen Wilson. Okay. I'll, I can dig it. So we then can, she meets, can so then she way. meets Owen Wilson. She meets, oh, so, oh she, 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 lay, she lays with Owen Wilson. Uh, all right. Okay. In the biblical sense. Right. Okay. And so the thing about this is, so it's something you I have, like that I'm making you go. I don't know why I'm just torturing you. This is, this is just, this is, I told you I was going to be nervous about the, every time I'm nervous about the subject matter, I just torture my guests. It's like, Can, it's not hard. Like your job is not hard enough. You're having to study this dark matter. And, and then I have to get in weird, um, weird references to actors that. <laughs> That I may or may not care for. No, 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 no. I think um, I think we're crushing it. There's right a now. lot of Owen Wilson in all of my research. <laughs> sure, he's had a big influence, so sure. it's a, sort of a natural progression. <laughs> I like it. Um, back on track. Back on track. So the the something that's key to remember in this is that. This third ritual is very private. This, whereas the first two rituals are social, everybody's there, everybody knows that these rituals have taken place, everybody's involved in it. But the third ritual is only between the husband's mother and and the wife. And so there's can be some debate over whether this ritual has actually occurred. And if this, if all three rituals, especially this last, the third ritual, haven't occurred, and the woman gets pregnant before the proper proper completion of all these rituals, then any child that's conceived in that context is potentially a target or candidate for infanticide. And so because it's in private, there's um, there can be speculation. So a woman may or may not have done her rituals. And the hammer... Um, so, I mean, the idea of paternity certainty, you know... What's the trying third to, ritual, by the way? What The third ritual is the 
washing the menstrual blood and breaking the gourd. Oh. So it's like a, it takes place over like three months. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Because the woman wants like menstruation over the course of right. two to three months. Okay. So consistent menstruation. Um, it's called the Gungalo Gilo. Um, so in one sense, it's relatively straightforward. It's pretty, um, and this is really, really common rationale for infanticide is paternity certainty. So, or paternity uncertainty. So if a male suspects that a child is not his own, this occurs, um, both in animals and in, um, in humans cross-culturally. If a, if a man suspects that a child is not his own, not his own, he doesn't want to invest in that child. And that child is potentially is more at risk for infanticide cross-culturally. Um, and in this society in particular, it's culturally condoned infanticide. Um, this is, it's accepted. It's not against the rules or anything. And the, the male will suffer no punishment. It's, it's the prescribed punishment for not going through with the rituals. And it's believed that if, the, if, if a woman doesn't perform her rituals and gets, has a child um, or conceives a child, then that child will... It's basically an ill omen. And if that child is allowed to live, there will be some catastrophe, either warfare or disease epidemic um, or drought um, will be will be suffered by the village. If this child is al- allowed to live, he, is, he will be the cause of drought. Conversely, if there is a drought or a disease epidemic, they look for a child who has not completed the rituals. So they can proactively look for a child who has not completed the rituals if their village is going through one of these disasters. They, they give them like a name or something, right? Isn't it? These are called, called so these are called Mingi children. Mingi children. They're like demon children. Or something. Yeah, they're not human. They're basically they're bush spirits. They're they're not they're inhuman Basically entities. my little brother Justin is a Mingi. Good analogy. Child. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> um and yeah, so there's this big supernatural threat, a big supernatural punishment if these if these children are allowed to live. So um, there's women may have a lot of guilt if they know that they haven't completed their rituals. Even if even if they conceive conceive the child with their husband, there may be significant guilt if there is a drought. If something does happen, um, must have done something wrong. Must have done something wrong. Mm-hmm. So some personal, you know, you transgress, you didn't do something right. And as a result, your whole community is suffering. So it's a really, really strong impetus for people, for not only um, for people in the village to try and search out one of these children to try and avoid all these really horrific things that can happen to their village, um, but also for the mother um, to give up the child um, if, if he is targeted. Well, I mean, doesn't this kind of make... Uh, some evolutionary sense that if when when times are tough um if if you can put pressure on uh on on someone to get rid of the the youngest just arbitrarily the youngest child in the in the group potentially Um, anyway that's what's interesting is it's not necessarily youngest child so if there's a drought it could be they could it's not just it's not just small infants so children two three seven years of age um, may be killed if they if they if through various processes if they decide that one particular child is the cause of all of this then they will um yeah huh. <laughs> or at least traditionally now there's possibilities of adoption which we can discuss also but traditionally it was infanticide 
Um, and also, so there's a third reason, a third type of mingi is children whose upper teeth. So normally in like 99.7% of children, the lower teeth come in first, both your baby teeth, your milk teeth, and your secondary adult teeth. Uh, lower teeth come in first, your, your front incisors. But in a very, very small percentage of children, the upper teeth come in first. And if the upper teeth come in first, this is believed to be a sign that the woman, that the mother did not complete her rituals. So it's after the fact. So there may, be, there may be absolutely zero, like nobody's even thought that a woman, you know, there's no question about it, but you know, that a woman completed her rituals, but then top teeth come in first and that child can is be killed. The devil. Is, yeah, is a bush spirit, an evil bush spirit. Yeah. Right. Huh. So um, anyway, so I'm looking at this and there's, you know, a lot of, there's been photographers and journalists and um, a lot of people have come to the hammer and done a really shit show job of documenting or trying to understand, you know, trying to just say, look how horrible and backwards these people are and this horrible superstition and these children are being killed and absolutely zero attempts to really understand the social, con social cultural context in which this is happening. Um, right. Well, you come from a place where like baby murder is sort of frowned upon and then you end up here and yeah. then you just want to condemn right. it. I mean, it's, a, it's the same, you know, you're, it's the same thing with Andrew, you know, this horrible criminal person. And then also these people on the other side of the world and they're so they're, you know, living in the past and they need to be civilized and, and, you know, give up all of these silly, superstitious, evil customs. But if Andrea Yates is over there, then they'd be like, well, why'd she ruin her van? <laughs> Holy shit! I was, I was, I was trying to. There, we can't. We're not gonna top that one. I gotta take a minute. I, 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 I took a chance. We we can edit that out if need be, but I have to take chances from time to time. Hmm. Again. Yeah. No, <laughs> you're the you're the one that got into this field of research. I can see, <laughs> I can see where that would be. That might be a bit much. We can we can we can certainly edit it, and even if we if we do edit it, then at least <laughs> at least <laughs> at least we'll have gotten to share this. But moment. what about the van? <laughs> Has anybody stopped to consider <laughs> this? Well, was, here I was getting jealous over here with your CK references, and I was like, "Oh, I can do dark humor too." Louis CK, oh, I get it. You're so taboo. <laughs> you think I can't throw out an insensitive joke? Of course I can. All right, bravo. <laughs> bravo. I'm a professional. Back on track. So, <clears throat> um. <laughs> I, I'm sorry that I keep on derailing this. I'm having fun. <laughs> I'm enjoying myself. Oh man, how do I move forward? <laughs> okay, okay. Let's so collect ourselves. Now, here's the thing. I have. I'm really interested in in inequality um and power differentials and and this applies also and so while well let me just go ahead and explain what's what i feel is going on what my 
all my data indicates. So when I first, when I you know went back after the first visit and just sort of learned the basics of of the tradition, I went back and I was I, first thing I wanted to do was understand. Okay, are there any patterns going on here? So they, if you ask the hammer, they'll say it could be any child. It doesn't matter if it's a son of a or you know child of a rich person or a poor person or it could be any child. There's no any child can be Mingy. There's no anybody can be just yeah flat out anybody can be Mingy. So I had some doubts about this, um, and I wondered if there were some if I could find some patterns. So the first thing I did was try and understand the demography um, and especially patterns of mortality. It's, like, who, it's who, like in the U.S., only only rich kids seem to get bone spurs. And there uh, you go. That's exactly right. Yes, right. exactly right. Um, it's going to be somebody else's kid, not mine. Right. If you're a powerful person, right? Everybody's trying to make it not their own kid, especially when they're doing a search for a child like this. Nobody wants it to be their child, right? And right. so, who has more leverage? My guess, my intuition is that powerful people are. You know, it's going to be rarely be powerful people's children. So first thing I did, demography and understanding um, rates of survival and mortality. And um, I found that, so the hammer are also polygynous, um, so men can have multiple wives. And just quickly, some of the basic patterns I found was um, children, se uh, second wives tend to have much lower status. First wives are have a great deal more status. They have symbolic necklaces that they wear um, that sort of indicate that they're first wives and therefore potentially have greater access to resources, higher status, bigger social networks, so on and so forth, more access to resources. So um, the overall mortality rate um, is about 23% for children under the age of five. So tw about 23% of children under five or die before the age of five. Um, but this is unequally shared between children of first wives and tr children of second wives. So second wives the rate of mortality is closer to 50%, whereas first wives, the rate of mortality is around 8% of children die, th th die before the age of five, which indicates it's sort of a, a proxy for understanding how many resources somebody has. If you have a lot of resources, your children are less likely to die. If you have fewer resources, lower status, your children don't have a, uh, a good a chance of success. And this is a pattern that you see. This is, I'm not you know, this has been seen over and over again. I just right. kind of had to clarify that this was happening. Additionally, children with without a paternal, if the husband's mother was dead, children also had a significantly higher rate of mortality, whether it was the first wife or second wife. Um, oops, sorry. I kicked a kick chain because I'm secretly really pissed. Um, <laughs> uh, so these are two sort of categories that I was saying where, okay, these are second wives and children or women who don't have their husband's mother. These are risk. I thought these would be risk categories for where these, who would be targeted for Mingy infanticide. And as I, so, and also through the demographic data, I could also understand, I was also collecting data on who Mingy, who had had Mingy children. And it turns out it's extremely rare. Like, uh, seven tenths of a percent of all births turned out to be Mingi children. So it's really, really, it's not like it happens in the media. They portray it as like, you know, children are killed right and left, just willy nilly. And it's all over the place, but that wasn't what was going on. Uh, there's, it's actually really, really rare, but those children that did die, that did die fit this pattern of, um, 
they tended to be children of second wives. The children tended to be um, children of mothers who didn't have a husband's, their husband's mother there to help with the child. Um, and the husband's mother could, it's not just helping with the child, but it's also husband's mother is older, more established in the village. And so her voice is powerful in gossip and could have a powerful voice in sort of channeling discussion in the fields when people are working together about hmm, is, this, is it that person that didn't do the rituals is it that person that didn't do the rituals so even children whose teeth had come in top first it was the children of these low status women um so and there's in all total i've only been able to to find seven cases where i know that infant either infanticide or forced adoption by an out group has occurred so either the now now there's options where instead of killing the child they can give the child up for adoption so but functionally in terms of you know having the child in the village it's, it's the same thing whether the mother has a child or not in the village that other people have to help take care of um so uh it does seem as though um the powerful are targeting these um children uh, are able to disproportionately target the children of the of lower status females and, and males um, for infanticide. Um, so to go back to, so why is this happening? Like, why would they, okay, you don't want it to be your child, but why target lower status um, women or lower status, low, the children of lower status women? Um, so I talked about cooperative breeding. Um, again, people tend to help each other out. But within systems of cooperative breeding, uh, there's also um, well-documented cases of reproductive reproductive suppression, um, where powerful, if everybody's helping to raise children, and if having, you know, first of all, you want more children because just for the sake of reproductive fitness, but also particularly in human groups where having larger families makes you more politically powerful, more socially powerful, because decisions tend to be made by can you know by 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 democracy and if you have more voices if you have a larger family you have more voices in the democracy and you tend to be a more powerful family so um it's in the interests in principle it's in the interests for um powerful people not only to try and increase their own reproduction but also to limit the reproduction of of less powerful um individuals uh so either preventing them from having children in the first place or when they do have children, um, especially in cases where there's competition over resources um, to protect your own children if you can. And the powerful just simply have more ability to do that because they have more voices in their, in their families. Um, and if you have a larger family, you tend to be more well-respected. Um, and so your opinion tends to matter, tends to matter more. Um, so that seems to be kind of, basically a rough sketch of, of what is happening in this, in this culture. But I want to, I don't mean to, so this sort of, I really, really run the risk of painting the hammer as these awful people where these power imbalances are happening like this. But I really think it's important to remember that do we really think that power imbalances and people in powerful positions using that for their own benefit is only happening in the hammer? It's certainly isn't it? I think that we can really see that clearly right. in our own culture as well. Yeah, and of course. It just happens to be in this instance where fertility and um, family size is really, really important that 
where it's not in our society. You can have a very small family and be a very powerful person in our society. But in the society where family size is really, really important and these dynamics of reproduction are really important, that it comes out in this form of infanticide. Yeah, I mean, it might it might flip eventually if enough uh, lower status people in our culture are having big enough. Fa- that, totally. I mean, they are starting to build like whole like duck dynasties are, yeah. are, are starting, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To, starting to rise in yeah. power. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, I, I don't think people are going to be surprised that, uh, that people in power have, <laughs> have a little more yeah, say. That's sure, sure. That's, uh, that's a pretty, uh, pretty obvious history lesson. Yeah. Yeah. So how are, how are things changing in, um, in modern society as, as, uh, uh I mean, I imagine there's a lot of outside pressure now that, as you said, yeah. from, from outside cultures moving in sure, and saying yeah. you need to stop this. Yeah. Um, is this, is this something that, that is still going to be happening 20 years from now? It's a really good question. Um, when I first went there and I saw all of the, you know, there's, um, you know, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, as well as the Ethiopian government itself are really starting to um, increasingly put pressure on the hammer to end this practice um, you know, well, I won't name them by name, but there's a lot of different organizations who are trying to change the culture. Um, and they've had some limited success. And I, I, so when I first saw that and I saw all these organizations and what was going on, I thought, okay, five years, this is, this is going to be over. Like change is happening so fast. Modernization is coming really, really quickly into the area. Things are changing quick and this is going to end really, really fast. Um, but now I'm not so sure. So I went to a, uh, pastoralists are really, really well known for being highly conservative, highly, culturally very, very conservative. They don't like change a lot. Um, they try, they do change, and they do involve over the course of time, but they're kind of known for being culturally conservative. And I went to meetings, um, particularly where this one NGO um, came and had a meeting. They invited uh, like 800 hammer to this sort of campsite where they had a big meeting the ngo head of the ngo or the representative of the ngo gave a big speech and the head of a uh, government official gave a big speech and the the subject of the meeting was on um they also have a tradition of, of whipping which is a uh, way of basically they don't have any legislative or judicial system so when somebody transgresses laws they they whip them so this is going to be men and women um, a whole group like age mates, people of the same age will go. If somebody in, in somebody's uh, age group does something wrong, then everybody in that age group will go, or a lot of people in the age group will go and, and whip them as a form of punishment. That's that's their yeah, system of punishment. All right. So the government wants to end this form of punishment, this whipping, and also end infanticide. These were the two subjects of the meeting. So they give a huge big spiel. They paid everybody who came, all these hammer males, um, who are in charge. I mean, hammer males are the dom- are very, very dominant in society politically and socially. So they paid them a really, really large sum of money in Ethiopian currency, especially in this like rural area. It was a really, really large sum of money. And they said, okay, we need you to end this and we're paying you this. And as a symbol of your willingness to end these practices, that everybody, all males carry these sort of whipping wands, these sticks that they use for whipping, but they just carry around generally as sort of a, symbol of their dominance right it's a sim as a symbol of your goodwill and intention to 
to give this up. We want you all to break your sticks. So, you know, in one kind of big moment, everybody held up their sticks and snapped them. And it was supposed to be... It's the end of the movie. You just wrote the end of our movie. (laughs) So it's supposed to be the end. Everything's good, right? (laughs) They said they're going to finish it and that's it. Oh, no, there's a sequel. And then I... So the next, you know, in the next week, I was sitting and talking to people in the village and I said, so what did you, you know, what did you think of the meeting and, and how do you feel about giving these traditions up and everything? And the guy was sitting with me and he had a stick sitting, laying on the ground next to him and he just picked up his stick and kind of set it on the ground, holding it and just smiled at me like. Just bought a new stick with all that money. <laughs> went and bought a new stick. That's right. A better stick. Exactly. So um, I think that the the efforts have been sort of missed to change, you know, from, from outsiders to change um, this culture are sort of misguided and think that they can just, that it's just self-evident that these practices are somehow wrong when in, in their society, they make good sense. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they benefit particular powerful people in the society. And so they're really, really reluctant to give them up. That said, um, there have been really, really strong efforts by a, a group called Omo Child, which is a guy from a related society called the Kara, who began this orphanage. Um, he actually left the society when he was young and got sort of a formal education and came back and, and found out about this practice, didn't know anything about when he was young, came back and saw it happening in his own culture and, and was really deeply disturbed and wanted to do something. And he uh, founded an orphanage with the help of a, a Western um, backer. And so he has sort of built this up and he's got, I think, more than 50 children in the orphanage now. He just, you know, has people on motorcycles that go out into the villages. If you have a Mingi children, just Mingi child, give them to us and we'll take them and they can live. And when they're older, they can, you know, hopefully come back and be part of the society. Um, And so that's actually had uh, a big impact. And especially in the villages that are close to population centers, small towns and things like that, where there's a lot more influence People genuinely do seem to have have said this this needs to end, even though um, they're still reluctant to just end the idea of me of Mingi altogether. They still think we want to end infanticide, but we don't want to end the idea of Mingi. So these children these children still have to leave. Um, so there's still this power dynamic. the 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 effect is of infanticide is still being achieved, although the child isn't being killed. But there's still um, there's change. It's just, it's, it's gradual. It's gradual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting work. Yeah. Um, so you but, go over every summer? Yeah, I try to go every summer. Um, as long as I can get the, get the money up to go over there. Yeah, I try and go over there every summer. One nice. thing, do you mind if I also say one thing? Yeah. No, go for I want it. So this is, I, you know, I've talked about it. So this, these cultural. Wait, let me guess. You're yeah. going to say, the stick is voiced by Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that's Freeman. Not what you're, gonna not, say. you're not going to go Freeman. <laughs> no, not Freeman. No. Sure. No, everyone goes Freeman. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We need to bring. I haven't seen much of Connery, so I think I that know. Would be, I know. Yeah. I think we can get him. Cheap. I think people would love to have him back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm so excited about the script. Okay. I know it's going to be great. Um, but I also want to say, so you know, I've really concentrated on sort of these rules that are pretty clearly. You know, shaped by this patriarchal system, as far as you know, patern- protecting paternity certainty and things like that. But um, I also found cases where women, 
certainly the cultural rules are shaped by this in this patriarchal system, but that doesn't mean that women are powerless in the society. And I wanted to say that like there's been one particular instance that I'll talk about is women are also to you able to use these rules to their advantage. Um, so one woman, um, she was also she, a poor woman. Um, and I went and talked to her, <laughs> I went and talked to her in her fields and you go to rich people's fields and there's like, the grain is growing really high. It's all lush and green and everything. And I went and talked to her and it's just, it's her grain and her fields are not doing well. And it's really right. obvious. And she was building a platform that they used to dry the grain on. I said, what are you doing that? What are you building that platform for? He's <laughs> like, look around all of my belt. <laughs> totally laughing at herself. Like I'm dirt poor. I'm just like, I need something to do. Like laughing at herself. And she was so like funny about it. Like just really like I'm in terrible circumstances, but she was totally able to laugh about it and, it was really, really funny at the time. I didn't do a good job of explaining it. But anyway, no, she was you really... Gotta, you got to have a sense of humor about life. Really good-natured woman. Um, anyway, so she had a child. And uh, when the child was about two years old, and she had had a bunch of other children, she hurt. When I did like genealogy in the village, she doesn't have a lot of family. Her family is very, very small, so she doesn't have a lot of support. Her fields are very poor. Um, she's just not a high-status person in the society. Uh, when her daughter um, was about two years old, she started acting really, really strangely. People said that she started taking off all of her clothes, which is a huge no-no in, in Hammer Society, and going off into the bush with her child and for like weeks at a time. Um, and this happened several several times, and she was just not uh, stable emotionally or, or psychologically stable. Um, and she began saying, my child is Mingi, my child is Mingi. And, and kind of foreigners or tourists or people from the government had been walking through the riverbeds in the village. And she came out and ran out to them and said, my child is Mingi, my child is Mingi. And they're like, we didn't know what to do about this. And they talked to the elders, uh, the males in the society. They said, your, your child, we don't think your child is Mingi. Your child is in no danger. You're, you're fine. Your child is fine. We don't want to, you know, everything is okay. She said, okay, she didn't know what to do. And she was kind of rejected. She go, and, But the same things keep happening. Finally, she comes back out and she's able to, the, she keeps complaining about it, saying, my child is Mingi, they're trying to kill my child. And uh, finally, representatives from this orphanage came out and, she, and they said, okay, if your child is, is Mingi, if you think your child is Mingi, okay, we'll, we'll take your child. Um, and so she gave her child up for adoption to the orphanage. And then after that, she was able to, she, after it took about a year, but they said, finally, she's sort of like incorporating herself back into the social fabric and was better and better, better, um, became part of the community again, but, um, started but she, doing yoga, started doing yoga, eating better, stopped smoking. Um, but she was able to, she was having a really hard time. She, it was, seems like a very, very clear case cut of post partum depression or, or this you know mother in a situation where she's it's not working for her. it's too much for her she's got all these other children she can't she just doesn't can't do it and so she's able to use these cultural rules to negotiate a better situation for herself so women i just i think it's a good example of of you know women can use these rules also to for their own for their own benefit um so that may right. be a reason why women also want to perpetuate these rules, even though in a lot of instances, they may, 
right. not be so good, but they can also use it for their own benefit in a lot of ways as well. Um, so that's another reason why it can be perpetuated, even though it seems like such an awful thing for women, if they're also able to use it for their own benefit, it could be something that they are also actively trying to perpetuate. Hmm. Yeah. Well, this is fascinating. <laughs> this, this was odd. This is like a really, uh, there's, it, I, I'm glad that we got to talk about it because like you said, I'm sure at first glance, everyone has um, just their own assumptions about this and just thinks that this is just the most horrific thing that they've ever heard. And there's no, and these people are completely crazy and primitive. Yeah. And, and uh, so I think it's, it's very important to hear how some of these strategies evolved yeah. and took off through the culture yeah. and, uh, and uh screw rich people by the way that's that's if, if there's one if there's one thing that we could that we could all learn from this episode it's that screw rich people <laughs> watch, watch out for the people in power because they will screw you over i yeah well that's that's right. the main that's yours, my that's mine, my but... takeaway from it <laughs> And I'm the host, damn it. Um, all right. So uh, each week I have my guest uh, give a little extra credit assignment um, for the listener, a little, a little, uh, a little bit of bonus homework, yeah. if you will. Yeah. So uh, if you're interested at all um, in learning, understanding this a little bit more, especially um, understanding a little bit more of, you know, the real life circumstances, the real life experiences of what people go through and the decision-making process of, of how um, infanticide can occur. Um, there's a really, really great book that came out about a year ago by a researcher named Aaron Denham, and his book is called Spirit Children, Illness and Poverty, or Spirit Children, Illness and Poverty and Infanticide in Northern Ghana, um, which is about uh, something similar to what I've been studying, um, but it really does a great job of of of, of describing and humanizing um, the experiences of women and, and how infanticidal decisions are made. So I highly recommend that. Also, I know you don't want me to plug the no, charity. No, I didn't say, don't say I don't want you to plug a charity. You're free to plug charities. Because you, I, no, you don't want to no, help people? No, right? I said. That's what he told me. It's a, I, <laughs> I said that I don't mean to put people on the spot anymore by making them feel guilty about having to do it. was just getting to be a big pain in the ass. So I've given oh. up. I've, I've given, and I've instead encouraged people to better themselves, put the air mask on themselves. Oh, I, to I totally missed Go and yeah, yeah. I misunderstood. I was. I, no, I, that's I, fine. I thought you said I mean, that you didn't want your show to be a platform for people to <laughs> help each other. Okay, so it's, <laughs> I, <laughs> no, I absolutely. If you want, if the my... guest wants it to be, it still can be. <laughs> I appreciate you throwing me under <laughs> the bus like that. I do. I, I mean, just. He said nothing of the sort. Uh, no, throw a, let's do a charity. So, let's do it. This uh, the orphanage that I talked about um, in in Southwest Ethiopia is called Omo Child. Um, you can find it easily online, and they do great work in helping uh, these children and give them a great education, a very clean. And I've been to the space; it's really a wonderful um, atmosphere for children to be raised in, um, considering um, the conditions. And and so I really. Um, if you can, I think it's a great charity to to give to. Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. Called Omo Child. Omo, awesome. yeah. And you can go to the herewearepodcast.com website to find out more and get a link there. Thank you, Scott Culver, for joining me. Absolutely. I really appreciate you uh, bearing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
no, adding levity to this. That was, that was wonderful. I I thought we I thought we crushed it. This is the longest podcast I've done in uh, some time. Uh-oh. So we re- we really got in there. No, oh that's God. good news. People okay. always guests are always uh, are always asking for a longer one. So so there. Uh, we did it and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people i'll talk with you next week next week on the here we are podcast tune in to hear about Myco meditations retreat that we just got back from in jamaica had some listeners there we're planning on maybe putting together a special here we are podcast retreat um for listeners only in april and uh, it was it was amazing people from all over the world i think there was 25 people all uh tripping together on some pretty high doses having some really profound interesting experiences and i uh man it it's it's just a real it was a real illustration of how much um the the uh the galaxy of of the galaxies of information that is inside each one of our noggins and and how it uh how it um, expresses itself under these altered states is just so fascinating and I don't man I don't know how long this is going to last for me right now um, but I just after the most brutal depression be, uh, that I have had in I don't know how many years um, this retreat just ripped me out of it and made me feel really balanced i don't know uh life is a balancing act and i am a klutzy individual and i'm sure that i'm going to fall out of out of balance just as soon as i um start feeling a little bit sure of myself but um but I am I'm definitely grateful for um, uh, for getting me here to where I feel right now and, and the ideas that I've had over the past couple weeks and um, I've, I've really felt like uh, maybe writing a book I was sharing a lot of my ideas at the retreat with some listeners and stuff and and I, I was uh, I've always kind of been scared to take the leap into into writing all of my experiences and ideas down because I'm just in I'm just constantly unsure of myself and uh, unsure of putting myself out there because I uh, I I just am always exploring the many ways in which I'm wrong about things and finding out new things in which I'm wrong about all of the time. Therefore, uh, nervous about um, about uh, making anything concrete as like a book. Like, here are my ideas of what I think. But um, it would be a nice thing to have documented to build on more ideas in the future. Um... But anyway, that's that's kind of part of why I started doing the Patreon.com uh, 
slash Shane Moss thing with the everything podcast. And I'll be sharing other things <laughs> soon um, just to kind of start sorting out everything. Um, and what, what's worth writing down and, and getting feedback from you guys has been terrific. Uh, I've been really fortunate to have partnered with uh, the people at Laughable, and the Laughable app has been um, really good for me this year. It's it's amazing that um, that you guys who follow me can be alerted anytime that I'm on anything, and and then you get you get to hear more of my ideas and thoughts when I'm when I'm a guest on other podcasts that I don't necessarily share on my own podcast and um so that's been opening up some doors for me just in in that regard so just uh exploring more avenues in life and um figuring out you know toward the end of the year i i get into reflective mode a bit more and and then in planning mode for next year and kind of thinking about where i want to take this uh podcast or how i want how I want to uh, sustain the current quality and and um, and possibly get into some other uh, topics and explore other opportunities as well. So um, so yeah, that's uh, that's the kind of stuff that I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. So sorry again that you uh, didn't have an episode that we missed a week recently, but I needed it for me. Also, uh, internet's not the best in Jamaica, so that was a nice little excuse for me to um, stay off of the computer and my phone um, for pretty much the whole time that I was there, which is something that I definitely needed. I think we all need just a little vacation from technology once in a while. Um, make sure and uh, make sure and support um, Ramin Nazer. Uh, check out some of his work follow him on Instagram and Twitter uh, give him feedback buy some of his comic books and uh, and if you want to listen find out about some kind of unknown undiscovered indie music check out the Jimmy Fro podcast and we'll talk with you guys next week
Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, the black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a bat. bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my, 